Good evening. I give honor to our God, the one who is supremely worthy of praise and glory. I magnify Him, Father, Son, and Spirit, the one eternal God. I'm thankful for a kind providence to me and Terry today that uh, brought about our being with you, unforeseen by me as of yesterday evening, and then unforeseen by Brother Kevin and Brother Paul till uh, even a little bit later. But we're grateful for their kindness in accommodating the opportunity we had to arise providentially yesterday to be here. I'm glad to see each of you, my brothers and sisters. I'm especially glad to see two friends of uh, long standing here. Uh, Beth Burke is seated beside Terry, and right behind her is Judy Basham. Terry and I have been married 40 years, and the greater part of that time, both of them have known us and put up with us. Uh, which is uh, grace, you know, special mercy. But uh, both of them as well, along with their husbands, have been uh, especially gracious to not only Terry and me, but our family and uh, hospitality that they've shown over the years. Uh, when we would go up to Hillsville to preach there in uh, Virginia, Judy and Sammy, her husband, were always our host. We would kid about how late Sammy would keep us up. <laughs> Terry would go to bed, but he'd keep talking to me. But uh, he passed back in December, and uh, we look forward to seeing him again. There is a reunion coming for the saints of God. We're thankful. And then Beth and her husband were our home away from home when we lived in Pennsylvania. They housed us many times. Beth's now home giving care to her parents who are both up in years, and I don't think won't admit it, but uh, at the same time they they still need a helping hand, and she's been able to provide that over these months, and we're glad to have them both here as well as the rest of you, my brothers and sisters. It's good to see you. I always appreciate the visit of Brother uh, Glenn Berry as he comes out and joins us. And each of you, I thank you for the fact that... Uh, you're willing to listen to me. That means a lot. I appreciate it. I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 12 this evening. And may we hear the voice of God and His kind providence to us as we look to this portion of His Word this evening. We look this morning in John chapter 1 and the Sunday school hour at the prologue of John's Gospel, verses 1 through 18. And this evening we want to look at the words of John 12, look beyond that verses 19 and following down through about verse 43 of chapter 1. We want to look to the middle of John. And as we mentioned when we were with you last time, I think uh, last month, in John's Gospel, chapter 12 is somewhat of a pivot or transition chapter. Some divide the book of John into what is known as the book of signs and then the book of glory. The book of signs gives us Seven signs or miracles of Christ that he did among the many that he did. John chooses these because they are particularly instructive and they give to us a picture of the work of grace that God does in his Son. From there, John, having given us that book of signs, points us to Israel's unbelief in words that follow where we'll be looking tonight in chapter 12. And he moves to speak of Christ being lifted up. And as we'll see tonight in looking at that in John 12 and the other passages there in John's Gospel, that phrase lifted up is used to speak of his death, but that phrase lifted up is also used to speak of being glorified. 
And that phrase is one in which John looks on the cross because of what our Lord would accomplish and to which he makes reference in the words we're going to look at. Uh, John uses those words in a double way to reflect not only Christ's death, but also that act of our Savior which secures not only His glory, but our glory. His death on our behalf. We sung about it. I wrongly attributed this morning the words we sung tonight, What Can Wash Away My Sin? I attributed it to Elisha Hoffman. Uh, he wrote, Are You Washed in the Blood? Another Quukud's hymn that questions, Are You Washed in the Blood? He's the fellow that I mentioned at the Red Church there in Schuylkill County. But... Uh, this man that we sang tonight, his hymn, to which again I attributed the, his hymn to uh, uh, Mr. Mr. Uh, Hoffman. Uh, actually, Robert Lowry lived a little upriver from where we lived in Liverpool and in York County and uh, taught for a while at Bucknell College, now Bucknell University. He wrote that hymn, and I'm sorry for wrongly attributing it. I don't think most of you probably noticed, but it's always good to clear the air if you make a mistake, right? So uh, with that said, let's look to John chapter 12 this evening. By way of a title, I would give you this, The Hour Has Come. Let's read together verses 20 through 33. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This said he, signifying what death he should die. Trust that our God will add his blessing tonight to his word as we think together about it. Consider these things, particularly the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, but as well some other words that make the uh, story here more complete, more full for our understanding. Let's ask our God's blessing on His Word, please. Father, once again we bow before You in the name of our Savior, and as we come, we ask afresh Your cleansing for our sin. We are grateful, Father, for the truth You have given us in the Holy Scriptures. Thank you that thy word is the word of truth. 
Thank You that Thy Word is the Word, the truth by which You sanctify us. And we pray for that sanctifying effect tonight in our lives. We pray that Your Word would do in us that which would give us to be more like Your Son. Father, we pray as we focus on His words spoken so shortly before His death. We pray, Father, that You would grant us to hear Your voice. And grant, Father, that we would respond to that in love and faith and obedience and repentance where needed. Father, You would grant that Christ might be larger in our lives because we've looked together in the mirror of Your Word this evening. In Christ's name, Amen. Again, as we look at these words, we give you by way of a a title, The Hour Has Come. And again, that word is one that we see a number of times in John's Gospel, but here it has specific reference to really the hour or the time that is framed John's Gospel. All of the Gospels emphasize the cross. All of them move toward the cross. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all direct our attention, not trying to give us a full biography of the life of Christ, nothing along those lines, but they move us as they take us to His public ministry. They move us more speedily to the cross. And this particularly is true of John's Gospel. If you think about it, we're at chapter 12. His Gospel has 21 chapters, and yet the predominant focus is going to be on now the last few days of our Lord's life, His death, and then His resurrection. That should tell us something about the significance of the hour that Christ is speaking of here in these words of John's Gospel. For John particularly, that emphasis is there. But not only that, the other Gospels have it as well. Not to the degree, to the magnitude that John does, but they have it as well because they move us to the cross. Because it is there that our Lord Jesus' life finds its focus. He did not come to be an example. He did not come to be for us. He is one, by the way. I wouldn't diminish that. Peter makes that plain in 1 Peter 2. But the focus of his life was on his substitutionary death and his resurrection for us. And the words of our Lord here bring that clear as he focuses on that moment of glory that's going to take place because of what he will do as that grain of wheat that falls into the ground and dies. But as John gives us that, he frames it in terms of something that was expressed by some Greeks who were there for the Feast of Passover. Jews would commonly come that lived throughout Galilee or Judea in the time of our Lord, but as well those throughout the empire would come for the feast. In fact, it was required for Jewish men that they come, and, and it was felt that, that a Jewish man ought to attend the feast from out if he lived outside the, the area of what we would know as Israel or Palestine, that he would come and he would at least attend once in his life one of the great feasts. Now here, some Jews, some Jewish, it seems either proselytes or uh, others, we, we don't know exactly their background, but they're referred to as Greeks in verse 20. Notice please again what we've read. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was in Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. 
These words are words that I believe John particularly wants to frame what our Lord says concerning His death in light of because of something that's been an emphasis of John throughout His Gospel. We mentioned earlier this morning, both in the Sunday school hour and the 11 o'clock service, that according to Galatians chapter 2, John along with Cephas or Peter and James were apostles of the circumcision. In other words, their ministry as apostles was primarily among the Jews. And yet John, in his writing of his gospel, by the Spirit of God's inspiration, he focuses again and again on the fact that the life and work of our Lord is much wider than the Jews. He mentions, as we saw this morning, the words of John 1, the words of the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away, not the sin of Israel, but the sin of the world. In speaking with Nicodemus, about God's gift in the need for the new birth. He will tell Nicodemus what probably is the best known Bible verse in Scripture. Martin Luther called it the Bible in a nutshell. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believed in Him should not perish. And, and I believe for Nicodemus, and I think those words are the words of Christ to Nicodemus. Again, there's some discussion about where the quote ends, just like earlier we saw in, in John 1. But I believe in the case of our Lord, He's continuing to speak to Nicodemus and He, in effect, rocks Nicodemus' world with the words that He has come, not just for Israel. His work, His saving ministry is not going to be restricted to Israel alone, but it's going to reach to the world. And John will have this emphasis in chapter 6 as he speaks of our Lord's sermon after the feeding of the 5,000 in that synagogue at Capernaum. He will talk about how his, the bread that he gives to the world is his flesh which he lays down for the life of the world. And so there's this, this universal aspect that takes John's readers, many of them would have been Jewish believers, takes them well beyond what they would have understood of the work of Christ, that it was universal in scope. And one day as John in the Revelation speaks, as we mentioned this morning, there will be those from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and people who will stand before the Lamb and they'll be worshiping Him and saying, Thou art worthy. You're worthy. You've redeemed us to God by Your blood. And John wants to give weight to that. God wants to give vent to that in these words of His Gospel. As, as the Spirit of God directs him in recording the ministry and life of our Lord. Others can be pointed out. John chapter 10, when the Lord Jesus says to the Jews, speak of himself as the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And he, he speaks of laying down his life for the sheep. He says this, other sheep I have who are not of this fold, that is not of this Jewish fold. Them also I must bring, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. So he's gathering out from the Gentiles. And in John chapter 11, after the resurrection of Lazarus, when Caiaphas, the high priest, calls a meeting of the Jewish council, he speaks of how, as they were saying, the Pharisees were saying about Jesus and His miracles, you see, the whole world's gone after Him. And Caiaphas says, you know nothing at all. You're a bunch of know-nothings. You don't consider it's expedient that one man die for the people. They had said if this man continues to do these miracles, the Romans will come and take us away and this place. And Jesus said, and, and Caiaphas says, you don't understand. We're going to take care of him. We're going to put him to death for the nation. 
He'll die so that we can live. Now Caiaphas didn't realize it, but John says he was speaking by the Spirit. Speaking prophetically. And he said, John adds this note though. He said this, not that he would die for that nation only, but that he would gather together the children of God who were scattered abroad through the whole world. Hallelujah. He has a people. And we can be assured of that as we preach the gospel. As we have missionaries who go forth with that message, we can be assured there's an assured harvest out there. There are going to be those who will respond. There are those who will come. And the good shepherd's going to gather his sheep. As every one of us at one time, we were wandering sheep. Every one of us at one time, we were rebellious sheep. In the words of Brother Bonar, we did not love the fold. We did not love our Savior's voice. We would not be controlled. But a saving change happened because of what God's grace did. So it is that this focus is brought to us by John here in terms of these Greeks. Again, we're not told whether they were Greeks who would have been God-fearers, not yet taken the step of conversion or proselytization to the Jew, this Jewish religion, that they may have been. In any event, we're told they're Greeks. And that is more widely used sometimes than just a nationality. Remember when Paul says in Romans 1.16 about the gospel, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek and there Greek really is used in in distinction from a Jew it's not so much the ethnicity of Greece but but in other words Gentiles the same way in 1 Corinthians 1 24 when Paul says that uh, 23 excuse me when he says we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness again it's almost as though it's used as a, as a non-Jew a Gentile and, and so these men are representative as they come to Jesus somehow they've heard of his miracles somehow they know something of him I can't imagine that that wouldn't have happened as they've come for the feast and they're in Israel now and they've come to Jerusalem and already chapter 11 has told us there were those who were saying will he come to the feast they were talking about Jesus knowing his miracles and knowing the testimony of those miracles to him they're asking is he going to make it and brothers and sisters, to use the imagery of John the Baptist this morning from John one twenty nine. Yes, the Lamb is going to make this feast. The Lamb's got to show up for this one. Because this is, the, this is His time, as He says in His words. And the Lamb is going to be, the Lamb who will take away the sin of the world is going to be slain. The cross will become His altar. And is He slain there? He will be the one by whom the children of God scattered abroad will be gathered from all the nations. And so these men come and as they they are at the feast, they, they come with the request to Philip. Sir, we would see Jesus. Now Philip... His name is said of him. He was a Bethsaid of Galilee. We can see something similar to that in chapter 1. But what's interesting is they come to the man who has probably the most Greek name of the disciples. Philippus. Philippus, if you put the emphasis on the right syllable. Dr. Ark would have corrected me there. Philippus. His name was the name of the father of Alexander the Great, Philip of Macedon means lover of horses in Greek. Phyllis and Hippus. Hippus is the word for horse. 
A hippopotamus is a water horse. Hippos and potamus. I know you wanted to know that nugget of information right there. <laughs> Philip, lover of horses. His name, the most Greek of the disciples. And he goes and gets Andrew. Andrew has maybe the most next Greek name. Andreas. The word honor is man. Honor andros. It means basically man, manly. And so these two who are the, have the most Greek names of Christ's Jewish disciples, they go and tell Jesus. Notice at verse 22, Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. And again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And they're bringing a request. We would see Jesus. That's a great request. But I want you to notice the response of the Lord to that request. In the words of verse 23 we read, Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. As our Lord speaks here, it seems to me the response to his request, to the request of these Jews, is one that, that is almost puzzling. As they say, we want to see Jesus, it's as though our Lord puts it off by this response and says, the hours come, the Son of Man should be glorified. And then he starts talking about a, a corn, a grain of wheat. And he speaks of it in terms of if it dies, or excuse me, if it falls into the ground, and as it dies, it germinates, it's going to bring forth much fruit. Now I can imagine if Philip and Andrew went back to those Greeks, and the Greeks said, what did he say? Can we see him? Well, I don't know. <laughs> uh, he said that the hours come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And... And he also said that if, if a grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it abides by itself, but it falls in the grain and di- into the ground and dies, it brings forth much fruit. So? They're not getting a response, but they are. You see, the Lord Jesus is looking toward this hour of His being lifted up. This hour of His glorification is being the pivot point in redemptive history when the gospel's doors will be thrown open to the nations. And so it is that they're getting an answer. They just may not be able to appreciate it. But if they'd have come back seven days later or so, they'd have been able to appreciate the reality of what our Lord's talking about. Christ being lifted up in that hour of glorification which is part and parcel, His death and His burial and His resurrection, He was going to do that event that opened the door for the nations to come. And that becomes for us good news because I don't think we have anybody of Jewish descent among us today. All of us would be goys in the the understanding of the Jewish people. Gentiles, goyim. Every one of us. And yet, because of our Lord's words. But but He doesn't stop there. If you would, go on with me to notice what our Lord Jesus says in verse 27. And as we read these words, we have here something that some have called the Joanine Gethsemane. Joanine is another word for the writing of John. John in his gospel doesn't feature Gethsemane as the gospel writers do in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
They give us the Lord Jesus praying in the gospel when John presents the or in the garden, excuse me, when John presents the garden scene, he speaks of the Lord Jesus as Judas and the band come. And as they do, he asks them, Whom seek ye? And they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And they fall backwards, including Judas. Why? Well, because the Lord Jesus is making it plain, as John records it, that no man is taking his life from him. He's laying it down of himself. And he was. And so they get up, and as they get again, he get up, he's again asked, whom seek ye? And they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I'm told, I've told you I am He. And then He says something that's very instructive about the nature of His death. He says to those men who've come to arrest Him, If you have Me, let these go. Now I'd love to apply that a little more widely, and I believe rightly so because of the way John applies it. It's another sermon, another day, but in effect, brothers and sisters, on behalf of His people, When the Lord Jesus Christ submitted Himself to take the cup the Father gave Him, He in effect could say to the Father, You have Me. Let them go. Hallelujah. And there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. I feel like a Brother Ward moment and say, Ain't that good news? (laughs) Pardon me. I'll get back to... You see, he was paying a price for somebody. Mm-hmm. And because he paid a debt he did not owe, and I need I and I, I owed a debt I could not pay. Hallelujah. My debt's now paid in full. And done is the work that saves. Once and forever done. And I can sing with the greatest of them, with the best of them. I can't sing well, but I can still sing with the best of them. Jesus paid it all. And in the words of the way they used to sing the chorus, all the dead I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And that, brothers and sisters, is the good news, you see. And, and, and the Lord Jesus, as He, as he is presented here in John, we have again what, what is called the, the Johannine Gethsemane because we see in the words of verse 27 something that... And the other Gospels is presented in the context of the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't think either one's wrong. You know, some would want to do that with God's Word, but why do that? It's just like the cleansings of the temple. John has in the beginning of Christ's ministry. The Gospel writers of the Synoptic Gospels have it at the end of Christ's ministry. And you know what immediately critics say? A contradiction. Well... I think anybody with one eye and one with, with one eye and half sense could say, "Why not two cleansings?" Amen. Why not one at the beginning of his ministry, and why not one at the end? And guess what? At the end of his ministry, Israel was no better. The temple was still as rotten and corrupt, even though he ministered for three and a half years. Similarly, here, no need to find a contradiction. John shares something here the Gospel writers didn't share. And in regard to Gethsemane, they share something that John wasn't moved by God's Spirit and inspired to pen. That's all. Simple enough, isn't it? But here we see something that does very well correspond to Gethsemane when our Lord Jesus says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass. He requests, Father, 
Save me from this hour, as he says. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Save me from this hour. We have that same phrase, uh, the hour in verse 23 here, this hour. But we have what I believe can be well pointed out with regard to what our Savior says here, knowing the hours come when the grain of wheat must fall into the ground and die. Our Savior speaks, and as He speaks, we see what I believe is, is proper for someone who knew no sin to now be made sin for us. Some people, when they read the words of the Savior about Gethsemane, think that somehow Jesus was errant by praying, Father, if it be possible. I think that's a fully mistaken notion. People who would say that, I believe, are too used to sin, just like me. You see, I I have to say about myself, as the book of Job does, that man drinks up iniquity like water. I sin daily in thought, word, deed, attitude, motive, intention. I do it by way of omission and I do it by way of commission. But here the holy soul of the Son of God that had never, never, never tasted or experienced sin is contemplating what it is going to be like for Him to take to that holy soul our sin and its penalty estrangement from the Father. Forsakenness. And that's what it cries. Mark and Matthew recorded, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's going to drink that cup so that you and I might not have to drink it. He's going to drink it. And as he contemplates drinking that, the thought of the fellowship that has been his from old eternity with the Father being broken, severed by Him becoming sin-bearer and substitute for sinners, I believe it fills His holy soul with dread. And if if He'd have run to it, you'd have thought, well, He can't really be all He was. But no, He is. And so there's that holy shrinking back from sin. That aversion to it. May I go so far as to say that nauseating feeling because he's gut-wrenched, because he realizes that the reality of his work as our substitute is now about to be felt in his holy soul. Now is my soul troubled. I don't think you and I can enter into that. I, I I would like to know more about it. But then again, I won't. And it's better that I don't. What Christ has saved us from is something the depths of which I don't think we can appreciate. Sure can't comprehend it. To hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. In effect, that's what he bore when he took our sin upon himself. But in his person as God and man, it was an eternal in character because he was. And so he could bear that eternal penalty in his soul, which was a soul that was made of both divine and human natures in one person. Makes me want to say, wow.
And as we said in the 70s, say it backwards, wow. Christ was able to do that and to drink the cup. And and there's this anticipation of dread, as it were, that fills him. And because of that, in his response, he cries out and he says, Father, save me from this hour, but for this hour came I unto this hour. I've got a lot of scripture written down to give you that hour, but because of the time, I've said a lot otherwise. But, But in... John chapter 2, remember the way that it came of Galilee, the first sign miracle John records. When they're out of wine, you remember what happens? Mary, his mother, goes to him and says, they're out of wine. And he says, woman, what did I do you, do with you? My hour is not yet come. That gives us, I think, some idea of what was working in Mary's mind. She's in effect saying, son, show them. Son, let them know who you are. And I can't imagine, but there had been some sting for Mary because there were those who knew about the unexpected pregnancy and Joseph taking her and all of that. And then they didn't know what she knew. They didn't know what Joseph knew. They didn't know what Christ knew. That that conception was by the Spirit of God and that conception was a virginal conception. And here she is in Nazareth or in Cana rather, in Galilee near Nazareth. And as she's there, I'm sure for her she could say, sick them, son. Go ahead and show them. And what does he tell her? Mine hour is not yet come. His brothers, in effect, do the same thing, not from the posture of faith in John chapter 7. When when the Feast of Tabernacles is going on and he tells them, they tell him, brother, go up to the feast. No man that does what you do does it secretly. Go and show it. And Jesus said, your hour is always ready. Because you're in the world. But he said, my hour, my time has not yet come. And John gives us his focus on the hour, the time, because of the fact that that is that toward which our Lord Jesus is moving That's the very, again, the fulcrum of His birth, the fulcrum of His life, the fulcrum of His teaching, His ministry is all focused on the reality of the fact that this is His time. This is His purpose. And as He speaks of that reality, He makes it clear. If you would, look with me at just a a few verses closer to John 12, chapter 13, verse 1. And as Jesus is about to have that Passover meal with His disciples, we read this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour was come, that He should depart out of the world, out of this world into the Father, having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. Notice what's happened. He knew His hour was come. What night is this? Passover meal. What's going to happen after the meal? He's going to go to the garden. What's going to happen there? He'll be arrested. And he'll go from judgment hall to judgment hall as he's tried. He knows that his hour's come. Notice, if you will, as well, chapter 17, his words in prayer to the Father. John 17, 1, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Again, the focus on the hour. 
Now, as the Lord Jesus gives this response, and we want to come back to those words sandwiched in between verses 24 through 26 of John 12. But as He makes this prayer, Father, glorify Thy name, I want you to notice, please, the reply of the Father to Him. In verses 28, as the Lord Jesus says it through 30, after the Lord Jesus has asked, Father, glorify Thy name, then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. In other words, it was an attestation again of who Jesus was. Just like the voice of the Father at His baptism. Just like the voice that Peter and James and John heard on the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter mistakenly said in the face of Moses and Elias appearing with them, uh, the Lord Jesus, He said, Let us make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elias. And then the cloud of glory, the glory of God appeared and God said this is my beloved son hear ye him and here again this voice comes by way of attestation to our Lord Jesus the fact that he is going to be the one who will validate the father's work and the father's plan and the father's perfect and that plan that purpose will Succeed, it will prosper in the hand of the Lord's servant. Now, as we think about it, the Father says in verse 28 in his reply to the Lord Jesus, He says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. What's the both that work there? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. I don't know that I can give you a definitive answer, but I'd like to give you this. I think the both, I have glorified it and will glorify it, that the the have glorified refers to the signs, the miracles of Christ in His public ministry. And John is recorded against seven of them in the first part of his book, and often it's called the book of signs. And in that way, God had glorified His Son. God had glorified His name through the ministry of His Son because the Lord Jesus was not seeking His own glory in His ministry. He made it clear in John 7 that He was seeking the Father's glory. And He was coming down not to do His own will, John 6, verses 39 and 40, but the will of Him that sent Me. And so it is that that our Lord had glorified the Father. And even though Israel, as we'll see in the words, we won't see, but you can read in the words after these, this portion we look at, it will quote from Isaiah, Lord, who has believed our report, and it will talk about Israel's unbelief and its failure and its hardness and its blindness to recognize the one God had sent Even though that were true, the Father had still been glorified in the work of the Son. Even in the face of Israel's unbelief as He came to His own and His own received Him not, the Father had still gotten glory. If I could use this illustration, I remember Brother McGuire on one occasion sharing with the preachers at Fellowship he said he'd, had, he'd seen times in his ministry when he felt the Lord had particularly owned the message. And he'd go home that night and he'd see the, hear the Lord saying, Frank, the gospel ran well. 
And he said there would be other nights when it seemed the Lord had not particularly owned the message or not been any real response evident among His people. And he'd go home and that night as we went home, he'd hear the Lord saying, Frank, the Gospel ran well. You see, our perceptions of what God is doing are often faulty. The Father reminds the Son in this hour of His dread and anticipation. He says, Son, I've glorified My name and I will glorify it again. And He bolsters the soul of His Son as He anticipates the work of His cross. I will glorify it again. Child of God, the Father's love for us, may I say it? Because we're in Christ and He loves us like the Son, the Father's love for us is just as great. Let us keep that in mind. Let's not lose sight of it. Because our judgment of ourselves and of our lives and of our work and of our everything is very faulty and very limited at best. And that's at best. Let's wait as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4 for the day to declare it. Paul says, I judge not my own self. Read it just yesterday. It's, it, it, it's easy to look at ourselves and think, mm. and sometimes maybe we're right, but it's still not ours to judge. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again, the Father says. That's His reply. Now, if you would, I quickly want to ask you to notice, and I thank you for your careful hearing, the revelation that we see that I think we need to bring out in our Lord's words. <clears throat> First of all, relative to His death, if you would notice again verse 24, but let's take them now in conjunction with verses 32 and 33. In verse 24 again, our Lord says, in response to the request of these Greeks who've come to Philip and Andrew, and they in turn have come to our Lord, He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth, it remains alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And then as the Lord Jesus speaks further, and again I think to this same request of the Greeks, Notice it, verse 32. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. Again, the words that focus on all men here. Much like those words about the world in John 1.29 and John 3.16 and in John chapter 6 and the other sheep here. Jesus is basically again addressing the issue that the Greeks had brought to him. And then he's answering the, the question. We would see Jesus. And in effect he's saying, boys, you're going to see me sooner than you think. For if I be lifted up as I'm put to death on that cross of wood, I'm going to draw from all the nations men to me. Greeks and Jews, and as I mentioned this morning, even a didn't say it this way, but let me say it this way tonight. A slimy, scuzzball young sinner from Fayetteville, North Carolina. I'm going to draw. I'm going to draw those from every nation. I'm going to call those from every people group. And our Savior, as He speaks this, speaks of the manner in which He would die. That lifting up. And we sang about it this morning in the conclusion. I'm right on this one, I believe. Philip Bliss's words. Lifted up was he to die. 
It is finished was his cry. And I love the way Mr. Bliss caught the double aspect of lifted up, now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Christ is going to be lifted up, and as He's lifted up, He is going to be put to death on a Roman cross on a gibbet. But as He dies on that cross, He is going to as well be glorified by God the Father for, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, as He humbled Himself and made Himself obedient like a servant even unto death. Paul has to add, it's inevitable. It cannot be otherwise. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That becomes His lifting up as well. For in His fulfilling the work the Father gave Him to do and glorifying the Father in that way, the Father says, Son, I'm going to glorify you. I'm going to give you the heathen for your inheritance, the nations, hallelujah. I'm going to give you the everything and everything that Adam lost, given back to him and if you will, more besides. Why? Because as the representative man, the last Adam, the second man, the Lord from heaven, he's done the Father's will. And so it is that he was... He spoke of his death, and our, our writer John, by inspiration, makes it clear that that's what he's doing. Now, turn over to John 18. We could see this in John 3.14, as the Lord Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In John 8.28, he refers to when you have lifted up the Son of Man. <clears throat> but in John 18, we see something that points out the nature of the death Christ died as John would bring it out in relation to chapter 12. When uh, the Jews are questioned by Pilate when they bring Jesus to him and he asks, what accusation do you bring against this man? This is their response. Verse 30, They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him, and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. Now notice the words of commentary, verse 32. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spake, signifying what death he should die. If the Jews had put him to death, how would he have died? like Stephen by stoning. But he wasn't going to die that way. He was to be lifted up. He said that and his words are fulfilled in the fact that Rome had to be the governmental authority that would put him to death. And the death for a non-citizen was crucifixion. And that's where he died. So he said, if I be lifted up, if that grain of wheat falls in the ground, it doesn't abide alone. I'm going to draw all men unto me. I'm going to draw a multitude that no man can number from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and people. So it is, we see then, the death that our Lord Jesus died, referred to in the Revelation. But if you would as well, going back to John 12, notice also in regard to that death, the defeat that he speaks of. 
Notice as our Lord speaks in verse 31, He refers to Satan. And He says this concerning the hour. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Now there's some other verses that bring that out. I won't ask you to turn there. But in John 14.30 and John 16.11, the Lord Jesus refers to the prince of this world coming as He is going to His death. And He refers to the prince of this world being cast out. Now, we understand Satan to be alive and active. He's at work still. But the work of the cross was his defeat. Let me tell you why in the words of Genesis 3.15. You remember what God said to our first parents? He said, I will put enmity between thee, talking to the serpent. He said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. And then he said, it, that is her seed, shall bruise thy head, crush thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The Lord Jesus Christ predicted there is the coming seed of the woman, the virgin born one. And as he was predicted, brothers and sisters, in what he did at the cross, He busted the head of the evil one. Uh, And what I was going to say by way of what happened at the cross with the devil was he met a head buster. Christ has done that. Now, uh, I may not have mentioned this to you before. I I may have. If I have, you're welcome to nod your head. But but, uh, last year, and now you've heard it, so you you, you don't count, Terry. You've heard it. But last year, springtime, we had some copperheads in the backyard. Did I tell you all about that? I did, okay. I thought I had. I thought, that, well, you see, I thought I remembered that, but I knew you were. You couldn't help me remember if I said it here. Well, that, they, their, their heads got busted. But that next morning I built that fire. They started wriggling and writhing like crazy. Why? Well because there was enough muscular and nervous tension energy still in their bodies that that fire let it come out well Satan's head has been busted but he's still active but thank God he is defeated and that's good news for us child of God and God has given us the armor with which we can live in victory not sinlessness but victory I can't tell you I always enjoy the victory either. I wish I could. But we have a foe who's been defeated. Now his wrath and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not as equal. But here's the kicker. We're not confiding in our own strength for our striving would be losing if we did. We know the right man's on our side, the man of God's own choosing, Christ Jesus because of that, because of His work, He knew as He went to the cross that not only was He going to like a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die and then not remain alone, but He was going to gather. But He also knew that consequentially, through His death, the evil one was going to be served His papers. And He's going to have to vacate the premises for long. He's going to be put into a bottomless pit and then let out and then he's going to be cast into the lake of fire forever. 
And I like what Brother Ward, my black preacher friend, said. He said, I love the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two because there's no devil in them. (laughs) Hallelujah. You see, the prince of this world was defeated at the cross. And Christ speaks of the defeat. But finally, He also speaks of the demand. And I'll be quick here. But if you will, notice those words of verses 25 through 27. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. In these words that our Lord speaks here, we see a demand... And it's interesting, I won't ask you to turn there because of time, but in Matthew 16, in the words there of our Lord in verses 21 through 28 and paralleled in Mark chapter 8, when our Lord Jesus, after Peter has confessed him at Caesarea Philippi to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, our Lord, remember, goes on to say, the Son of Man is going to go up to Jerusalem, He's going to be rejected by the chief priests, and... He's going to be put to death and then rise from the dead. And you remember Peter's response. Lord, no way. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And then after that, Jesus said, whosoever does not come after me and take up his cross and deny himself and follow me, can't be my disciple. Basically, that's the idea. Look it up, you'll see it. But the thought is interesting to me. Here in John 12 is the Lord Jesus talks about His cross. As in Matthew 16, He talks about our cross. For you see, if I genuinely believe on Christ, then I believe that His death means the judgment of this world. And if His death means the judgment of this world, how can I be a friend of Christ and continue to be a friend of the world? In other words, if His death means judgment, final judgment, the cattle's dropped on this world, then how can I say I love Him and live in love with the world? In other words, His cross becomes for me that which says, David Morris, you must die in your flesh. But not only that, by the grace of God, Romans 6 tells us it provides the catalyst by which I've died already. And not only that, I've been raised as well. I know I don't look resurrected, but I've experienced it spiritually. I'm looking forward to the resurrection more physically. And because of that, life now is different. There's a different relationship sustained to sin for me. And I am to use the words of Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. I'm to put off and I'm to put on. I'm to put off the old man. Why? Because the old man's dead. And I'm to put on the new man. Why? Because that's what I am. And that, brothers and sisters, is what our Lord is in effect calling us to here. The one who loves his life in this world will lose it. The one who hates his life, that is the one who looks at his life rightly. Not hating it in the sense of positive hatred, but in the sense of the reality of knowing that following Christ means I too am to die. 
And that's what one man said. I don't agree with all that he said, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer in The Cost of Discipleship made the statement, when Jesus Christ bids a man come and follow him, he bids a man come and die. Now there's that hymn I love, Come and Dine, the Master calleth, Come and Dine. But I think we could change it if we wanted to in the light of our words. Come and die, the Master calleth, Come and Die. We sang about it tonight, didn't we? Follow, follow, I will follow Jesus. And what has our Savior said? If any man serve me, let him follow me. Where was he going? To the cross. The hymn writer caught it well when he asked, Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone. There's a cross for me. May God grant us to follow Him. That's the demand. Uh, the old Germans called discipleship Nachfolge. Nachfolge. Literally means following after. Because that's what discipleship is. A disciple has a master, a teacher. And he's following that teacher. And that's what you and I are called to do by the grace of God. May we respond by that grace. And live is those who've died indeed unto sin and been made alive indeed unto righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we ask You now to bless Your Word. We thank You for Your people. and We thank You, Father, for Thy blessing to us in the hearing they've given. And pray now, Father, make this real in our lives. Father, let me be a true follower of Your Son. And let each one of my brothers and sisters here be such. In Christ's name, amen.